Welcome to the Mark Devine Show. This is your host, Mark Devine. In this show, I go deep into what makes the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders so fearless by bringing to you people from all walks of life, such as grand master martial artists, meditation monks, elite level CEOs, special operators, stoic philosophers, proud survivors, and sometimes even just me, such as today. In each episode, I endeavor to bring our guest experiences to life and distill it into actual insights that you can learn from and use to lead a life of your own filled with compassion, power, and courage. Today, I'm going to do a solo cast and also answer some questions about leadership. And since we record one to two weeks in advance, and with all the turmoil happening in the world, especially with Ukraine, what a better time than now to look at the many faces of leadership. So I hope it can add some insight, open your minds, and maybe bring some clarity to this whole very murky field. All right, so let's get busy. First off, because of Ukraine, I want to talk about really just this idea of what is leadership. Everyone's got a different view of it. The, the concept of leadership or the field of leadership is, is about as broad as any come in the field of social sciences. Everyone's got a different opinion or view on what it is. Is leadership just a position such as leader of a country? Or is leadership the act of leading, which could be motivating and inspiring and coordinating the efforts of others? Or is leadership an art really about one's character or essence and how they show up in the world? And the answer is it could be all of the above. But you know, when you start to look at it, you can ask some qualitative questions such, here's a big one. Does a moral stance or does morality have to be involved in the art or act of leading for something to be called leadership? When I think of leadership or the definition of leadership, it does include a moral quality to it. So let's look at world events in that vein. So if a leader like Putin, who leads the nation of Russia, can invade a neighboring state and destroy lives in his you know, view of, of what the world should look like from his perspective to rebuild the Soviet empire, some semblance of some past uh, utopian view that he has of what Russia meant, and he's destroying lives, which is morally repugnant, then is that leadership? Or is that just bullying? And I say, it's the latter. He's just a bully. And others would say, no, he's a great leader because look what he's doing. He's re, uh, rebuilding the Soviet empire. And then I asked, well, is that what his people wanted him to do? Was there a huge groundswell of individuals, of his citizens who wanted Putin to do this? Or was he really just acting out of his own egoic needs and desires, right? And maybe to stamp his legacy into the sands of time. And then you can take a look at the Ukrainian president, Mr. Zelensky. Now, Zelensky also has this, what we would call positional power. So from his positional standpoint, he is also a president, just like Putin. But Zelensky isn't invading his neighbors and killing individuals indiscriminately. In fact, he's on the opposite end. Now he has found himself in a position. And so when you have a position, you essentially take on the role of the defender of the organization. And the organization needs a leader or a, a figurehead at the top. So that's another, you could say that a leader of a country is more of a figurehead. And if they possess leadership qualities and morality, then they're also a leader. So Zelensky, as a figurehead in the position of president, is also a leader in the sense that he's upholding a moral standard that the rest of humanity would say is good or righteous, or at least from a higher developmental stage than Putin, who is 
indiscriminately killing civilians. And so in that regard, you can say we see an individual with the qualities of a leader who is performing leadership acts or behaviors in a position that one would typically consider to be a, a leadership position, which is really the temporary placeholder of being a leader of a country, or you would give, have the same conversation about the leader of an organization. So let's put a pin in that. Now, we can also look at leadership from the perspective of characteristics as well as influence. Let's talk about influence first. So when you're in a position of power or leadership uh, role, then we have naturally certain influence um, at our disposal. Because of the position that we're in, we have the ability to coerce people through the powers or instruments of the structure, whether it's a government or a corporation. So there's a positional power, there's coercive power, there's reputational power. Putin, for example, Putin has the positional power as the president and CEO of Russia. He uses his coercive power through brute force and, and his uh, FSB or the former KGB to coerce and to you know, use hard power such as military might. And then he's got this reputational power as well, because he's been there for 20 years. People know his reputation as a former KGB agent. They know his reputation as a ruthless and cunning statesman and his reputation for being um, willing to go where most positional leaders in charge of a corporate state, like uh, what we have currently in terms of our nation states are willing to go. And I'm speaking specifically about using chemical weapons or allowing supporting the use of chemical weapons, biological weapons, and also nuclear weapons. Now, he hasn't actually used nuclear weapons yet, but he's clearly um, rattling his saber there. And so because of his reputation as a ruthless and cunning statesman, when Putin rattles his sabers, the West had better take it seriously. And, and I hope that we are. And then you have expertise power. Now, expertise power, when it comes to political positions, is sometimes there and is sometimes not. You'd be hard-pressed to say that President Zelensky has expertise power through a life in politics. But you could definitely say that Putin has expertise power through a life in politics. And also President Biden in the United States has expertise power, whereas President Trump did not have expertise power. And so that showed in, in their leadership styles and, and how they kind of organize the efforts or the management piece of leadership. By the way, leadership is said to be doing the right thing, whereas management is said to be doing things right or efficiently. So there is a distinction between leading and managing. And oftentimes, positional power individuals or individuals in positions of power, which we can mistake for leadership, they're often just managers, right? The next kind of level of influence comes from charisma. Now, we see this at some level with Putin in the past. In his early days, there was a lot of charisma that he brought into his role, and his population enjoyed the fact that he was bringing some glory back to this Russia that made them nostalgic maybe for the Soviet Union days. Again, I'm guessing here because I'm not Russian and I've frankly actually never been there. I'm just a student of human behavior and leadership. But then it seems to have been lost in the past 10 years because part of charisma is also knowing when kind of it's run its course and when to kind of step out and let others you know, have their moment. And so Putin has never let anyone else have their moment. He considers his entire life to be Russia's moment, right? And he's going to bring glory, like this one individual is going to bring glory back to Russia. And yet that charisma power has really been bled off over the years. And it really now shows up more as what I was saying earlier, that calculating brutality and cunningness and someone who really just doesn't give a shit besides anything except for what he wants. 
Whereas now let's contrast that with Mr. Zelensky because he is a comedian and a boxer, right? And he had this, this colorful life that actually thrust him up you know, into the limelight in Ukraine, which was seeking motivation and enthusiasm after many, many years under the Soviet thumb. And so as Ukraine was beginning to experience some Western values of freedom and democracy, which is very inclined to appreciate fame over hardcore expertise, like we saw in this country with Trump versus, let's say, Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so now he finds himself in a positional power as a leader where his main strength is not just the position or to back up the position is his charisma. And with that charisma come certain qualities of beingness, which are combined with certain strength of character in terms of what he's doing that are making him extremely effective and really kind of uniting, at least from our perspective, are uniting the Ukrainians and, and helping them find the courage to stand up and mobilize instead of flee, which obviously is causing a little bit of thorn in the side of Mr. Putin's plans. And many believe, myself included, that Mr. Putin did not have a good appreciation for what he was going to find when he invaded Ukraine. He thought maybe it was going to be a quick slam dunk, like the initial invasion of Iraq in 2000 for Desert Storm when Saddam broke within uh, days or a week and it was one and done. Or even in the second time we invaded Iraq, an Iraq government fell, but then we found ourselves locked in a long quagmire. And I think you're going to see a similar situation like that in Ukraine if there is not some sort of off-ramp, which in my opinion, it's going to be difficult to see how Putin is going to orchestrate an off-ramp that doesn't you know, challenge his ego in some way because the guy likes to win. So with Zelensky, you have this charisma, which is backed by a very strong character that says, you know what, this is my moment here now. I'm the leader and I'm going to put all of my charisma skills to work here as a pugilist, as an actor, and now in this positional role as the leader of this um, newly freed country, Ukraine. And so I'm going to use those skills to my advantage to motivate and to inspire uh, these individuals and, and to talk to them as my brothers and sisters and to show them by leading by example, meaning I'm not going to flee the country and, and like other leaders have when their country has been invaded or their, their lives are at risk. You know, I'm going to keep myself and my family, my inner circle, we're going to stay here and we're going to fight alongside everyone else. And that has been very, very inspiring to many of us in the West because we don't see that very often. Right. And many in the West, and there's even been recent surveys around this, are not willing or don't think that we'd be willing to stand up and, and face down tanks and bullets. We haven't had to do that since World War II. And so it's really interesting to think about what if we were in Zelensky's shoes? What if we were in an average everyday Ukrainian's shoes? And how would we be acting right now? You know, would we be grabbing a weapon and, and running to the front lines, running toward the sound of gunfire, or would we be fleeing? So there's these different types of influence power at the higher levels. And I'm going to get into kind of another aspect of leadership in a moment around developmental stage, but we have compassion and inclusion. You don't see a lot of compassion coming from Putin, but you see a lot of it from Zelensky and you see a lot of inclusion from Zelensky and the fact that he's running a democratically elected government. He's, you know, he's got support and he asks for support. He doesn't just dictate. He's not autocratic. Whereas Putin has a very, very decreasing or diminishing inner circle. And uh, it's possible that he could be the king with no pants right now, but nobody's willing to tell him that his pants have fallen down around his ankles because it's not safe to tell him. 
And when you read that even his own government wasn't aware that they were going to invade, but they're too afraid to say anything because they'll end up in jail or worse, you can see that there's not a lot of compassion and inclusion in that type of leadership model, but you do see it in Ukraine. So what we have here is like two radically different worldviews, two different types of people in terms of their developmental stage as human beings. What I mean by that is that Western psychology, one of the primary or major gifts to the world is the ability to study ego development and recognize that there are these different stages of ego development. And the highest stages are what you would see in the spiritual qualities of someone like the Dalai Lama or Mahatma Gandhi and these leaders that we revere. But we've come to recognize that those are traits, behaviors, and qualities that are developed in human beings. And maybe only a few percentage of humanity will ever or has ever developed the qualities of the Gandhis or the Dalai Lamas, but it's not inaccessible to everybody, depending upon where they're at and their, their life situations, if you actually work on it, right? And so this is the whole, opened up the whole field of developmental psychology and transpersonal psychology and a lot of the things that we do in our business, Unbeatable Mind. So you can apply this model, developmental psychology model, and say that Zelensky is operating out of a post-conventional uh, worldview where he's got a much more inclusive perspective and is operating much more from his heart because he's got that compassion. And so developmentally, he's much more evolved than a Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin is working out of a, a very early or pre-conventional, almost egoic stage of development where fear and um, separation rule the roost. And he's very, very ego and ethnocentric and can give a crap about much of the rest of the world. This is why you know he doesn't value life the way that Zelensky values life. One very famous developmental model developed by a psychologist named Susan Kirkroyder has seven stages of development. Unbeatable, we have five. Let's just use five, for example. Putin was operating between first and second levels of development. That we call those first and second plateaus, survivor and protector, whereas Zelensky's operating out of the fourth and fifth, the uh, equalizer and integral. And it's like two ships passing the night, which is no wonder that they're not going to have any uh, concordance when they have these, these peace talks or these um, you know, ceasefire talks, because they're literally operating like alien races, you know, talking completely different languages. So I think that's fascinating. When you look at leadership from the perspective of stage of development, you can see that leading at a first plateau level looks a lot like gangster activity and leading at a fifth plateau integrated, world-centric, inclusive level looks a lot more like what you're going to see with a Zelensky or other more spiritually evolved leaders. And my position here is that that's what the world needs more of. And this is why we're so inspired by Zelensky and we're so appalled by the behavior of Putin, you know, to actually deliberately target, obvious to us anyways, deliberately target civilian areas and, and to really bring the heat to the civilian world to bring pressure on Zelensky and the Ukrainians to capitulate. That's repugnant behavior. That's first plateau behavior. At any rate, wouldn't it be nice if we had the capacity to or the ability to have a prerequisite or set of standards or prerequisites for those who we allow into these positions of power to lead major governments? And maybe someday uh, that'll be something to aspire to, right? Where someone you know actually has to be at a fifth plateau or above uh, stage of development in order to have the right to lead their country uh, into the future in those positions of power where they can wield such incredible uh, destructive or positive influence because of all the different powers that, that accrue to them. So the last thing I want to talk about is the notion of leadership as a 
juxtaposition between who you are as an individual, your personality type, your character or stage of development, and your life experiences versus what you do. Now, some people will only look at what an individual does and claim that that's leadership. So that would be look at like leadership behavior or X as kind of like defining the leader. And so a lot of corporate leadership development, you see this, this kind of played out in the sense that the leader is really um, about developing mission and strategy, which is doing stuff, as well as motivating and or um, coordinating. And you, know, you could put a bracket controlling the actions of the organization to meet the objectives or the goals. And oftentimes, uh, coordination collaboration, you know, slides into control depending upon uh, the developmental stage or even the stress level of the leader. And so the behaviors and the skills that an individual has in these doing things of leadership, such as defining a mission, uh, creating good strategies, motivating and coordinating and facilitating collaboration, those are important leadership skills, but it doesn't define the leader. So what defines the leader? This is the being aspect of who you are as a person. The attributes that come out of who you are or the leadership things that come out of who you are include things such as vision. What's the vision? That's a very internally generated sense of what the future looks like to me as a leader. And what does it look like to me as a leader for my organization if I'm in that role? Also values, right? So what are my values and do I believe that the organization should share these values or have values of its own? And how are we going to demonstrate that those values are important to us through our behaviors and through our incentive plans and by walking our talk, so to speak? And, and this is probably one of the biggest issues we see now why ESG and social capitalism is so important these days, because for many, many years during the industrial and early information age, you know, values were just things that were slapped on a wall and people would walk by them and forget they're there within two days. Whereas now, stakeholders, especially employees, are demanding, like demanding that an organization walk their talk when it comes to the values and have values that are inclusive and uh, more healing for the damage that's been done in the past. This is why environmental, uh, social and governance issues and diversity, equity, inclusion issues are so important. And many people kind of rile against them and they think it's a political issue and it's not. It's actually being demanded by employees because they're sick and tired of seeing organizations not walking their talk and actually, you know, saying that they value something, but doing something opposite that harms someone somewhere. And again, back to nation states, it's going to be up to us as citizens to hold our nation's leaderships to the same type of standards we're now holding our corporate leaders and our corporate leaders to hold the nation leaders to the same standard that they're being held by their employees and stakeholders so that um, we get to a place where all structural leaders are being held to the same standard of do no harm while doing good and making money or organizing the efforts of a citizenry so that you know things don't go to hell in a handbasket, which is essentially the role of government. And so vision and values are an aspect of who you are. They're not something you do. And then because of this, we can develop a stand, like we stand for something. So think about, let's take this back to Zelensky. Zelensky has a vision for his country and he's got a set of values that he lives. And so he stands for something. And he's willing to stand up and to literally die for that cause. You could say that Putin also has a vision uh, for him and for his country. He's got a set of values that at least he adheres to, whether his populace does or not is, is a separate issue, but it's probably not. And he's taken a stand, but um, it's not an inclusive one. Right? Again, his vision, values, and stand are coming from a much lower level of 
character development than Zelensky's. And so you're, you're seeing, you know, quite different behavior. Okay. So that was um, quite a lot there. And I, I covered a lot of territory and I hope it was interesting and valuable to you. I just wanted to share that information really off the cuff, um, unprepared comments so that we can kind of open our mind about what leadership is, reflect upon what's happening in the world today with Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, to just step back a little bit from leadership and kind of the academic discussion. Yeah, I think personally, this situation, as I alluded to earlier, is going to go on a lot longer than we would like. I don't think there's going to be a quick and easy resolution. You know, the Ukrainians have been put in an existential situation and they're going to fight for what they believe to be right. They're taking a stand and Putin has taken a stand for what he wants. He's got a lot of firepower, but he doesn't have skills of urban and guerrilla warfare. That's why he's recruiting Syrians and, you know, Chechnyans. And so we're going to be looking at a situation like Afghanistan for a while. The difference is that you're going to have an enormous amount of pressure put on Russia as a result of all these sanctions and chasing down all the oligarchs and seizing assets and all that. The good side of that is it'll put a lot of pressure on the citizenry and on Putin's inner circle to maybe influence him if possible, or toss him out a window, which would be advisable. And the flip side, the negative side would be the caged or the cornered lion principle is that, you know, the Putin's not getting what he wants and he's getting all this pressure and he's already declared that economic warfare is something that he puts on the same level as military warfare and that we're engaging in economic warfare, then he's already justified in his mind the rationale for lashing out and attacking uh, NATO countries or Europe or even the United States. And, you know, really the only way he has to do that is through asymmetrical weapons. Uh, cyber warfare, chemical biological warfare, and God forbid, nuclear warfare. So we are in a very, very dangerous time now. Uh, we've always known, and I've been uh, saying for years that we're heading into the fourth turning. Neil Howe's work, The Fourth Turning is a phenomenal book showing how uh, these generational turnings happen. And every fourth turning, which for us happens roughly every 100 to 120 years, is a time of great economic and actual physical violence. So the last fourth turning was the period between World War I and World War II. The turning before that was the period of the Civil War in this country. And before that, it was the Revolutionary War. Literally, each one of these roughly 100, 120 years apart. And so now we're in the fourth turning. And it was always, we're in the latter stage of the fourth turning is when things turn violent. And this is when one generation who's roughly Putin's age and Biden's age begins to see their own death and, and make their, want to make their mark on the world. And they, so they do things that are complete contradictory to what the incoming generation that are in their 20s or early 30s, which is you know where you see you know the people rising up and basically saying, screw that in both uh, corporate American culture and also in, in Ukraine, and basically trying to change things, whereas the old guard is trying to keep things the way they are or go back. And it tends to lead to great economic dislocation and chaos. And then when it ends, right, the new guard comes into power and you tend to get two generations of really, really calm and prosperous periods. And then, and then it starts, the whole cycle starts to happen over again. You add to that the exponential age that we're in with, with technology adoption and, and development just accelerating explosively. Um, we're in, in for some very, very interesting times in the next five years, you know, between now and 2030. And you're going to see a lot of changes in global structures and culture and I'm very optimistic that what is on the other side of that is going to be a much better world. And um, it'll take a lot of trial and error to develop the new structures that are going to 
grow up as sprouts and the seeds of whatever the industrial age structures, you know, end up either decaying or getting destroyed as a result of this chaos. Unfortunately, a lot of people will be hurt. And so it's up to us to be very, very aware and um, to not contribute to the negativity through fear, but to be optimistic and to maintain a positive mindset that we can move to a better place and that we can co-create a better future. And if we have hundreds of millions or eventually a billion people who are able to maintain a positive mindset, positive imagery about the future, positive dialogue, and to feel into the compassion and inclusiveness and connection of all beings to see the sameness instead of the differences and to not lord over other cultures or other uh, those who don't look like us or share our values, man, then we can actually, through just scaling consciousness like that, can have a major effect in changing the reality of our situation on planet Earth, which is basically feeding off of hundreds of years of negative thinking and control and violence. A lot of it that has been very deliberately portrayed upon us uh, through powers that be and like to remain kind of anonymous and hidden. But um, that's a different subject here. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. I'm also pleased to have Amy join me, Amy Jerkowitz, who's my producer. And so she's going to pop in here. Hi, Amy. First of all, I just want to thank you because for your insights today, it's so timely. And to hear your viewpoint, I know is really revealing and interesting to so many people who follow and listen to you. We are in such a tenuous and frightening situation in Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. And you really clearly articulated that there are two countries here being led by two very different men with very different leadership styles. Right. And we can just hope and pray that it ends peacefully, but it is, as you say, probably going to be a long road. When I looked at this, I was caught off guard like many people, even though our intelligence agencies and even the president was saying, look, they're going to invade because they had, they had credible intel. I kept thinking, well, you know what? Putin has already gotten mostly what he wanted, but just by massing troops on the border. And um, I can't see why he would want to invade. It can only go against him, you know, his interests, right? And then he went and invaded. And guess what? Everything's gone against his interests, right? Suddenly, the entire Russian culture is shut off from the global economy. They're considered pariahs, you know, not the people, but, you know, certainly the state. All of his oligarchs who soaked billions out of the culture are now like, trying to chase down their boats before the FBI or Interpol gets them, you know, and, and are having to sell their soccer teams and, and they're not even able to sell their soccer teams. And so he just cost all of his crony friends billions and billions of dollars. And there's so many other, you know, things, you know, uh, Ukraine is suddenly heading closer to NATO instead of further away. Poland is, you know, and all the, the border countries are going to be arming up NATO, which he was hoping to drive a wedge between is suddenly coming together. And Germany, which had resisted arming itself up since World War II, is now basically allocating defense money to start investing more in their military and their defense. And now so is Japan. What an incredibly like opposite day scenario from what he wanted. The biggest issue, though, and we don't need to go here because we want to get to our fans' questions, is five letters, and that's China. You know, on February 7th in Beijing, 
it was green lighted this whole war, you know, wait till the Olympics are over. They have their support. They're still putting propaganda out. So two world powers, one very, very big has galvanized the other. And it speaks a lot about China's leadership as well. Back to our in developmental stages and kind of who they are. They are not good people. And I know some Chinese might be listening and say, yeah, they are. Well, no, if you want to control and manipulate, we do a level of this in our country. I think a lot of our leaders are good intention, but I think our system has also a lot of corruption and a lot of like weird things going on. You know, like what, what's going on with these biological, you know, factories over in Ukraine? Like, is that something that you and I voted on or, you know, would expect that United States would be involved in? No, right? No, like, I don't get that. So there's a lot of things that we do that we pretend that we don't do. So we're not the heroes all the time, like we think we are. But when it comes to freedom, the human being is always on a movement toward freedom. The only thing that can shut that down is a system that crushes your freedom. And you don't, you're not able to question. You just take everything that you're fed at face value. We have some of that going on, people who believe fake news and this and that. But when you live in a society where everything is censored, like North Korea or China or Russia, and you can't speak out because you'll get killed or sent to a gulag or to an Uyghur concentration camp, that's not freedom. And so any system or any type of human that takes away or contracts the humanity or the freedom of others is operating on a very, very low level right, of fear and control. And my view is that you know, at least the West has the capacity to continually evolve. That's why we're always evolving our institutions and we get stuck sometimes, but then we kind of break free. And the pendulum swims a little bit to the left or right, but we've got to, as a citizenry, really fastidiously protect the freedom and even freedom of speech. So, you know, we have a little bit of a concern right now about freedom of speech because, you know, that's one freedom that if that starts to go away, others will slip. At any rate, it's a fascinating time to be alive. And it's really important for everybody to not bury their head, but to pay attention and to learn from what's going on in the world stage, but it also not get sucked into the fear. You know, fear just makes everything worse. Well, and I think we'll see that in some of the questions. And I just want to quickly go back to when you said China, that, you know, like Xi Jinping might not be the best leader according to how we articulate what makes a good leader. It's not his people. It's the same thing in Russia. The people have no voice. They're they're being suppressed down. That's what we're against as Americans. I'm going to jump right into this because I think you're going to enjoy some of these questions that have come from different social platforms. We have some from LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. And I'm going to start with a question on the topic that you just talked about from a woman named Leela W. And she says, what do you think it is about Zelensky that has galvanized his people's resistance? I kind of talked about that already. Ukraine has had a taste of freedom. And so they've got free internet. They've got things like TikTok and, and uh, Instagram over there. And they've had a taste of Western kind of culture. And, th- and they've been moving toward it, which has been increasingly agitating to Putin, right? Because he was hoping, you know, for a long time, he was able to have a puppet government in there. And then that got tossed out. He blamed that on a coup from the United States. But for a long time, you know, he was able to control his satellite states like he does with Belarus. But uh, Ukraine slipped through his fingers. And now you have this young, charismatic man who gets you know, elected, an actual real election. And he's got that charisma power that I talked about. And the charisma power comes from not his expertise, not necessarily in politics, but his expertise as a comedian and someone who can um, make people 
smile and also who's willing because he's a, you know, he's a boxer and, you know, it's hard to be a comedian and a boxer, right? There's a lot of character development that goes with that. And I would maintain a lot more character development goes in developing the skills to stand up and make people laugh and to fight people in the ring than it does to uh, garner votes and go through an electoral process and, and to work your way slowly up the ladder, you know, in a democratic system. There's a lot of compromises that happen. And by the time you get to the top, you end up with something that looks corrupt to some people and others, maybe not. So anyways, he seems to be uncorruptible. He seems to be pure, right? He represents that the youthful energy that the nation of Ukraine as almost a reborn country feels. He's like the perfect man of the perfect moment to inspire the nation because they feel like him. They feel like he represents the Ukraine that we want. We want Ukraine to be happy and to protect fun, but be a fighter to fight for our values and fight for our future. And also people who are very proud of their past and the fact that they did endure a lot of suffering at the hands of the Soviets and um, a lot of oppression and that they're not going to stand for that anymore. And so just a few actions that he took really galvanized the public, right? When he, when he steps out and, and posts video on Twitter saying, you know, I'm not leaving, I'm staying and my family's staying with me, right? Or we don't need sanctions, we need fighter jets, right? <laughs> He's just asking for very practical things. And it's really inspiring. You know, how much of that is like legitimate and how much is showmanship? I mean, everybody at those levels has got a, a brinksmanship and showmanship, you know? And so I think he's just the right person at the right time. And he's very inspiring because I think the Ukrainians see him as embodiment of what their country's potential is. I think he also, he's acting with so much less ego. Right. And you talk about that a lot. Here's sort of a, a funny thing to think about. If two women were running, one was running Ukraine and one was running Russia, do you think we'd be in this situation? Uh, probably not. One of the women would have to have basically set aside all of their womanhood to have the cruelty and um, you know domination quality Putin has. And I'm not saying that that a woman couldn't you know subject themselves to that energy, but it's not natural for them by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it's just not natural at all. Women are by their nature nurturing and more open, and inclusive, and literally lead with having conversation versus the fist, whereas men are, you know, we're literally instinctually trained to lead with the fist and then ask questions later, you know, in, in the old model, the old school, it's changing, right? And so Zelensky's part of that change. And I think um, younger generations are part of that change. That's a great question, though. I don't think we'd see ourselves in this. So we should put women in charge of all nation states until we get through this. Personally, I just know we wouldn't be in this situation because, um, you wouldn't find, oh, I mean, it's not completely true, but it's the narcissism. It's the killing of innocent people. It's the ego. It's the power. And I'm not, of course, there's women who are like that, but it would be done more by compromise and let's be rational. But again, we can't generalize that big. It's just something to think about. This is from somebody on LinkedIn, Jonathan W. And it's a little bit too, you've, you've talked about it. So I'm going to change the question a little bit, but what characteristics or qualities should we be looking for from our leaders as the world changes so rapidly? People who fear a one world government, you know, are right because, you know, if that's a totalitarian government, you know, like we see in China or Russia, then that would be bad for everybody. But if we could have one world standard that everyone, you know, somehow could be held to, that would be good, right? And if that standard uh, said that, uh, you know, any leader of our 
or humans, nations, right? Nation or humans, humanities, tribes really had to have a certain depth of character. And the depth of character come, you know, is expressed in certain qualities. And so what are those qualities? One is that they align with universal principles such that what is good for me is going to be also good for you. It cross-culturally. Let's take the biblical quality of treat your neighbor as thyself, right? If you're going to treat your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't invade your neighbor and bomb a maternity ward, right? You just, it wouldn't even cross your mind or your heart. You know, all leaders, I think in the future, we're going to have to have this quality of moral uprightness and they don't have to have the same values as all the other cultures, but there's certain universal values that humanity can in any culture basically point to and say, that's a good value. That's good. So let's identify those universal things and then let's hold leaders accountable to those. And so another one is like this idea that nuclear weapons are a good idea is just the definition of bleeping insanity, right? And so we shouldn't have leaders who still believe that nuclear weapons are good. Now, how do we get to a point where we can have the trust to be able to denuclearize? That's been this fly in the ointment for any kind of talks around that way, but it's not going to happen until the evolution of consciousness where the majority or certainly a super minority on the planet earth, especially those aspiring to power or allowed into power, have this, this inclusive, you know, we're one race and we're all in this together kind of viewpoint, which happens naturally. It's Ego, myself, I'm all that matters. Second is ethnocentric, which is I matter, but also my tribe matters. And that's where most of humanity is now. And then the third stage is world-centric, where or cosmocentric, where we all matter, including our home, right? If you look at planet Earth, it all matters, or otherwise we could disappear through catastrophic environmental collapse, or we can disappear ourselves through nuclear attack, or we could disappear ourselves by not mobilizing as a global community to protect against, you know, existential crisis that we don't necessarily see yet, but have destroyed the other species in the past, such as asteroid hits and whatnot. We don't have any of those right now. We're not acting together as one race. And so we're racing toward the bottom. And we're at a very, very sketchy period where we could literally blot out this version of humanity and the survivors will pick up and dust themselves off and go back to the stone age for a while and pick up the pieces. It really could go that direction very easily, you know, and and so it, that's why I think instead of sitting and cowering, for me, what do we do? We talk about it and we all visualize the world moving away from that. And we hold our leaders accountable to you know, move away from these things that are just pure insanity. You talk about denuclearization. Right. No one talks about it. There's not one leader who says that's where we need to go. It's the opposite. And I think that people are ready to talk about, they want to talk about those things. You know, nobody likes to live under the threat of annihilation. And even knowing that it's there and then denying it adds more stress to people's lives, right? When I grew up, we used to get, you know, do those under the table drills in school. Like that was going to do anything for us. It was pretty hilarious. Just stressed us out, you know? So I agree. So we ought to have those conversations and we have to get to a point where we have a, at least a, like a global council of elders who are able to assess and evaluate and say no to leaders who don't have the qualities that are um, going to be good for humanity, right? In the individual countries. It sounds utopian, but I think it's something like that is absolutely necessary. You could talk to have the same conversation about the climate, you know, whether it's the climate changing and how rapid it's changing or 
the buildup of nuclear weapons in countries that one little touch and we're all blown up. Right. There's no one coming together to talk about the world and peace and how do we move forward? Right. I'm a big believer in the power of the human mind, you know, and I've studied yoga for years and people who study yoga eventually are led to Pantanjali sutras. And you learn about the powers that accrue to yogis who meditate for years and years and years. I have this belief that we're kind of moving back there and technology is going to help us, right? Virtual reality, simulations, artificial reality. We're going to be able to achieve what a yogi studying in a cave in the past you know, would achieve over 70 years. We're going to be able to achieve that in seven, 10 years, right? At scale, like really affect some of these things like, like a global warming. You're going to be able to have hundreds of millions of minds acting together through group visualizations and meditations. And they've already done research to show that you create a vibrational harmonic coherence or when people meditate and visualize the same things. You know, Dr. Dispenza has done some of this work and Heart Math has done it and many others. And so if you can imagine hundreds of millions of people visualizing the environment healing and, and shifting weather patterns and visualizing you know, the earth without nuclear weapons, really is a shift consciousness or literally will make the conditions for the use of nuclear weapons untenable somehow. So I think another possibility is that you're going to find a future generation who's just going to find it so appalling and they're going to work together through the mind. You know, it's not just action with their hands and their feet, but it's through the mind. Mind creates everything. It creates the conditions that we see on this planet. The reason we have such violence on this planet is the, the collective negative mindset that has accrued over literally thousand years that's projected out onto the world. And so if we can change that collective mindset to one of positive and uh, inclusive, then you'll start to see the outer environment change really quickly. That's a very yogic point of view, but I believe it personally. It's one of my missions to share that knowledge and to get other people to, um, to experience the truth of it you know, for themselves. When you think how many years ago Patanjali <laughs> wrote the sutras and Thousands of years ago. Thousands and thousands of years ago. And they remain very true and worth anybody taking a read. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. This is from a username. I can't even pronounce this. Guess on heights. Flegger. Hey, Mark, I'm a nurse and co-chief of a cardiological station, and we have doctors in our emergency team that are yelling and blaming us for nonsense. Okay. Like, where is the defibrillator? Um, that doesn't sound like nonsense to me, but... No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this user says, we don't have one. During CPR, they're asking that. And the question is, how can I support my team members in that moment without taking away the focus of the emergency? I mean, the best way to support, in my perspective, to support team members in this situation is to teach them some basic skills of mental control so that they don't allow the circumstances of an out-of-control leader to unbalance them in a moment of crisis. I developed something called the worm process, where we create a metacognitive partition in our mind so we're always able to watch both the input as well as what's happening in our thinking mind. And anytime, so we call that witnessing or the W, anytime a little bomb is dropped, such as you know what's being described here, a doctor just going off on me or my team, 
or there's an internal disrupt, such as suddenly I feel overly fatigued or suddenly I feel negative thoughts or I see negative thought patterns rise, then that's where the eye comes in of the worm. And that's to interdict it, to say, you know what, that's negative. That's not going to support me right now. And you interdict it with a internal contradictory thought pattern. So if I'm thinking negative, then I insert something radically positive. And you do that by literally overriding with a word saying, no, I'm not going to think that negative thought or that's not serving me. And then you do the R, which is a redirect to something positive. And that might be, I'm a professional. I'm going to stay focused on doing my job and I'm going to maintain control by breathing deeply and calmly and staying radically focused on just doing my task here. And then you maintain that through calm breathing and continuing this witnessing process, or even having a mantra that you just kind of say in the background. It's a very, very powerful process of maintaining internal control and becoming non-reactive. And so in a situation like this, you're trying to save someone's life and an individual is going off, you're not going to get in a fight with the individual and forget about the patient, right? Nor can you allow yourself to break down and start bawling or to, you know, to get all mad because then you'll lose focus. And so you develop this internal control. And ultimately, as the more you practice this, you realize that that's really the only thing you can control is your sense of internal equanimity and calmness, which are great leadership skills, by the way. And you're not going to let anything that happens outside of you, including a boss or someone who's a jerk, to rattle you. Now, that's what I would say. But that takes a little bit of teaching. That's a skill. It's not something you automatically just suddenly snap a finger and have it. And so you got to develop that in yourself and with your team. And another way to look at this is in that moment, if I don't want to take the time or I haven't taken the time to develop this skill, and even if I have, doing a pattern interrupt is a good idea, right? And so if I have an individual screaming at me and it's, it's very unproductive and it might even jeopardize the mission, which in this moment is to save someone's life, I might just pause, take a breath and look at this individual and say, well, yelling at me isn't going to help this patient recover from his heart attack, is it? And that's just a shocking interrupt or some verbiage like that. Don't take much time, but just very calmly point out the obvious to an individual who's lost control. And oftentimes, first, they're not respecting it. And second, they're like, oh my God, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry. Let's get back and focus. Or another interrupt would be to take a brief breath, calmly look at the doctor and say, would you like me to handle this since you're so out of control? You know, something like that. And it's just going to be like, whoa, I'm sorry. It's like holding a mirror up. So the individual can see, you know, the craziness of what they're doing. And so they can get back and focus on the mission. And then you can deal with it later, right? In whatever way that makes sense for you. We had another person write in, his name is John Kay with a very sort of similar question. So I'm not going to read it, but he does make a really good point that we've been in such a stressful situation for the past two years. And now with everything that's happening in Russia and the Ukraine, that people's resilience is low and their reactiveness is very high. Right. And I think you just explained, well, what do you do? Like, how can you bring everything down a notch? And there's even another meta skill. First, anytime something happens, whether, okay, you can look at this in the long term, like Russia invades Ukraine, and all of a sudden everyone's all up in arms. P is pause. And pause interrupts the information flowing into the amygdala, which is basically sniffing and it's feeling fear and it's sending all the signals to your, you know, your automatic nervous system and it's triggering your sympathetic nervous system which is triggering fight or flight. And then it's cascades from there. And then you breathe. And the breathe then takes that interrupt and turns it into a positive thing because now you're, that deep diaphragmatic breathing through your nostrils actually stimulates your vagus nerve and releases the, the rest and calming hormones, which counteracts the fight or flight hormones, the adrenaline and the epinephrine. 
So pause, breathe, that gets you back in control. Imagine the whole team doing this and then think. Now thinking is how do we analyze what's going on? What mental models am I using? Am I, am I using fear-based, reactionary, and negative mental models? Or can I, now that I have a little space, can I look at this? Can I research? Can I find out what other people are thinking? Am I going to look at this over the long term or the short term? What does it mean for me? So you think, and thinking is a whole skill that requires a lot of thought. <laughs> and then only then, after you've done those three steps, then you act. And that action is a well-thought-out, well-crafted response instead of immediate knee-jerk reaction. You can see that in the emergency room. You can see that if you're in a time of war. You can see that if you're in a crisis at work That's right. you know, and you feel attacked. We got a lot of questions about stress this time because obviously people right. are feeling it. And I, I think that advice, I think we should all put PBTA up on our bulletin board so we can right. try it. This is a question. It's not really having to do with leadership, but it's out there. And I think people would appreciate your answer. It's from Noah W. And he asks, how to best handle sexual harassment and or assault within the workplace? I appreciate the question. This is one of those things that's suddenly moved to, it happens and you grumble about it, or you go to sexual harassment training and nothing's really done about it to non-negotiable. In workforces that allow this to happen, they're not going to be around much longer. People are just going to refuse to work for them. And so if you're in a situation, if you're a victim of this or it happens to you, it's your time right now to basically say, hey, this is non-starter and to publicly call out the perpetrator or whoever's you know, doing it. And it takes a lot of courage to do that and it can be uncomfortable, but you'll be the hero. You just can't allow this behavior to happen any longer. Any type of extreme bias like that, that comes out in the form of negative sexual harassment, any type of serious racial bias and those types of things, it just, it's just non-negotiable anymore. In my opinion, you know, it's time for when those things happen right then and right there, you call an all stop, like an audible and you say, all right, hold it right there, right there. What you just did, what you just said is not acceptable. And there's two ways we're going to do with it. One, you apologize right now and we'll deal with this like humans, or I'm going to go right down to HR or to the CEO's office and we're going to deal with this right now. It's not time to brush this shit under the rug anymore. It makes so much sense. Of course, you say the words, but you imagine you're a 26-year-old young woman and the CEO of the company is, is doing is the something. And yeah. Nothing is worth being devalued and humiliated and treated wrongly. People yeah. are voting with their feet as well. Yeah. And so, But you know, rather than vote with your feet and just walk out the door, see if you can be the change right. that you'd like to see in the organization. And if that doesn't work, then leave. There's plenty of great places that would like to have you, especially because of your courage and your stand. Yeah. Okay, two more questions. One is, how do you personally drive important life decisions? You know, I love that question because in my world, all life decisions are important life decisions. You know, I don't drive anything. I just pay attention to all the little decisions. And if you pay attention to all the little decisions, all the little things that happen every day, then the big ones take care of themselves. You know, said another way, or the proof to this is kind of the opposite day approach, is if I ignore all the little decisions around my health and fitness and wake up someday and say, I want to be a Navy SEAL, well, that's an important life decision. Yet the chances of me being a Navy SEAL are, are nil because I've ignored all the small little cool decisions, day-to-day -day life decisions about how I feel myself, my training, the quality of my thinking, the people I hang around with, and mentors and coaches and all that. 
Now you could pan out and say, yeah, but I'm facing a major life decision in terms of a change of career or lack of clarity of, you know, whether I'm doing the right thing or dealing with, you know, a health crisis. And I could say, okay, all of that exists because of my point, because you haven't paid attention and made minor course corrections day in and day out all along. And now you're at a point where it feels like a crisis. And so let's deal with a crisis. And the only way you're going to deal with that is to pause, press pause, to get out of your fear state, stop doing, stop trying to fix everything, pause and go into a meditation contemplation period. This is what I did. You know, you knew me at Colgate and then I went and became a CPA and MBA, but you know, it was sitting on the meditation bench. It was when I pushed pause that I was able to take the time to kind of like really reflect upon my life and what was going well and what wasn't going well. And and it was through that process that, you know, I literally discovered that I was just doing the wrong thing. I was a good person, but doing the wrong thing. And what I really needed to do is do the right thing for myself. And when I started to do that, my capacity as a human being just started to explode. I felt stronger. I felt smarter. I mean, I was a solid B student at Colgate. It was because I lacked confidence because I was studying something I wasn't interested in. I wasn't clear about my future. And as soon as I aligned with what was clear to be my purpose, and I was super excited and passionate about it, then believe me, it seems like my intellect went up like 20, 30 points and all this creativity flowed out of me. You know, if you're facing a crisis, then don't like meet that crisis with more activity because it might be the wrong activity. Press the pause button, take a retreat, you know, spend some time on the meditation bench. Just take some time to go inward and to ask better questions and to find out where to point your arrow for the future. And follow your path because you did become a Navy SEAL. And I do have to add, just in case people don't know you very well, you were also a D1 competitive swimmer. Sure that. And that gave you a leg up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a breaststroker here. So leg up. We went sideways with a leg up. Yeah. Isn't that on your stomach? <laughs> yeah. That's a painful stroke, actually. <laughs> All right. Our last question has to be from somebody. There's no name attached to it, but they must know you. This is a really, really deep question. Do you still eat pizza? <laughs> Heck yeah. Pizza is like the universal food. I mean, who doesn't love pizza? Now, do I eat it every day? No. I mean, when I was at SEAL Team 3, man, we could eat anything back then, it seemed, and it didn't matter. But I would get two medium pizzas at Domino's. Domino's had a two-for-one deal, and I would get two medium pizzas. I would eat one for dinner, and I would eat the next one for lunch the next day. And I would do that twice a week. Crazy, huh? I probably told that story before. This is why someone heard it. But that was back when I was 26. So now. 80% 80% of the time, I eat whole foods, tons of veggies and fruits, some nice smoothie in the morning and lean meats. And I, I don't touch any bread, you know, or sugar. I gave up alcohol because of the sugar and, you know, other reasons. <laughs> you know, pizza is like soul food, you know. So once a week, maybe, or once every other week, I'll, I'll get that medium pizza and I won't eat the whole Thing. No, now you you eat half of it for dinner and the other half for lunch. That's what happens years <laughs> later. Well, Mark, thank you. You know, again, it's like this is such a treat and an honor for me too to do these and to hear questions from everybody who admires you so much and to hear your really deep and interesting and thoughtful answers. Thank you, Amy. You're great doing this with me and I really appreciate it. All right, that was an incredible episode. Thanks so much for those questions. If you submitted them. Um, We covered a lot of ground talking about leadership in general, talking about contrasting and comparing Putin versus Zelensky. They're different leadership styles. 
different models and ideas of leadership. And if you want to submit questions like that or engage with me, you can find me at Mark Devine on YouTube, Mark Devine on Twitter, at Real Mark Devine on Instagram and Facebook. You can also hit me out on my LinkedIn profile. Quick plug for our new newsletter called Divine Inspiration sent to you weekly. If you're on the email list, if you're not on the email list and you want to get exclusive content once a week where I disseminate other inspirational people, habits, places, things that I come across that I think would help you lead a life of courage and compassion, then go to markdivine.com and subscribe. And thanks again to Amy who helped out with this Q&A podcast. Also, my producer, Jason Anderson, videographer, Jeff Haskell, newsletter producer, Jeff Torres, writer, Melinda Hershey. This amazing team helps produce this podcast, bring incredible guests and get it to you every week. If you haven't rated or reviewed the show, please consider doing so. It helps other people find it, gives it credibility. My goal is 5,000 five-star reviews this year. So be great if you could help me get there and uh, refer it or send it to a friend if you think it's valuable. Uh, As we talked about in this show, we're heading through a very dangerous time in human history. The world's changing fast. We're in the exponential age. There's a lot of chaos and crisis in the fourth turning, but we can make a difference through how we think and how we collaborate and how we become more world-centric and inclusive instead of separate and violent. So do your part. And I appreciate you doing that. So show up and be strong and courageous and compassionate, but also help others understand the importance of being inclusive instead of separate and being world-centric instead of egocentric or ethnocentric. I hope that you stay strong and safe and you don't have any relatives, or if you do have any friends or relatives in Ukraine, I'll send them a positive energy and good wishes for safety and health. Booyah. This is the Mark Divine Show. Mark out.